Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, is God a vindictive bully? Is the God of the Old Testament different from the God of the New Testament? What about some of these moral problems that we have in the Old Testament? Slavery, apparent genocide, misogyny. Are these, is this really the true God? What do we have to say about this? Well, we have one of our favorite guests on to talk about it. Dr. Paul Copan, who originally has been uh, on this program to talk about a similar issue with his first book, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament, but now there's a brand new sort of updated version of that book. It's called, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Reconciling Portrayals of God in the Old and New Testaments. As you know, Dr. Paul Copan teaches at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He's written a number of books. He has his PhD from Marquette. He's an all-around great guy. He's the king of puns as well. Do we have any puns for from you today, Paul? Or I have well, to you'll you have up. to wait and see. You'll have to wait and see. Okay. I might do a Punjabi on you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's start with what people don't know about you. First of all, married. Mm-hmm. Happily. How many kids? Uh, six kids. And where are, where are they all now? Uh, they're scattered throughout the United States and one who is in Paris, France. What's she doing in Paris, France? Uh, married a guy who is in, uh, in Paris and uh, they have two, uh, two kids um, and we, uh, yeah, but they met at, met at church and- uh, Met at church in Paris. In Paris yeah. Why was she there? Uh, she had gone over as an au pair and uh-huh. uh, without knowing French and uh, learned French and is fluent and can, can keep up with them all. That's amazing. And yeah. then you have two grandkids in the U.S. Yeah, right, in, in New Orleans. All right. So, All right, good. And yeah. are any of the kids in full-time ministry? Um, well, I'd say that our, our, our son-in-law in Paris is involved in a kind of ministry through the arts. He's, oh, good. Uh, he's had a film at the Cannes Film Festival, mm-hmm. a short film, and just more recently at the uh, York, England uh, Film Festival uh, called Aesthetica. Now, this new book, Is God a Vindictive Bully?, mm-hmm. What is new in this book that wasn't in Is God a Moral Monster? Yeah, so it's not a it's not a like a, a second edition or something uh-huh. like that. It is completely new content. All right. So I have chapters on the imprecatory psalms, those harsh psalms. Right. Uh, I have uh, material on the God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, on was David a man after God's own heart? Mm-hmm. What about Uzzah's touching the ark and being being struck down mm-hmm. by God? Uh, what about Elisha and the bears? Uh, what about some of those? Uh, challenging passages like the firstborn of Egypt and the flood and so forth. So, and what I'm trying to do is uh, address some of the ch- other challenges that have come up uh, in which there are some, I call them critics from within mm-hmm. and critics from without. The critics from without are like Richard Dawkins, the atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there are critics from within who are people like Greg Boyd and Peter Enns and Eric Siebert and mm-hmm. so forth who are, you know, within the church and, you know, but they differentiate between the actual God and the textual God. The textual God, for example, is the God of the fallen ancient Near Eastern prophet or narrator. Uh, and so when you, when, you know, who's violence prone and so forth. So when it says, thus says the Lord, mm-hmm. well, that's not a guarantee that the Lord is speaking. That's probably just a misinterpretation. In fact, Greg Boyd says things that look like they're being, people are faithful and committed in the Old Testament, 
you know, from, from a New Testament point of view or from a Jesus lens would be considered demonic. So there's a, so that the actual God, however, is the God who is understood through Jesus, you know, and especially his act on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, this act of forgiveness, of enemy love, and so forth, this shows us the heart of God. And so Greg, Greg Boyd says that this is what we need to look at, and that anything that deviates from that, that cannot be from God, that must be from Satan, that must be from fallen human beings. So I'm pushing back on the new atheists, or the, and other, mm -hmm. others from outside the church, um, and I say that, you know, in my key verse is Romans eleven twenty two. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Mm. And to the those critics from without the church, uh, I, I say that God is much more kind and gracious than you realize. And to those who are uh, critics from within, that God is more severe than you realize. Mm. For example, Jesus himself, he is one who is seen as one who will not snuff out a smoldering wick or, or break a bruised reed. But on the other hand, as Revelation 12 says, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So you see the kindness, you also see the severity. And if people are resisting uh, God, resisting Jesus, then you can expect severity. Uh, and so, but Jesus would rather show love and compassion and, and, and graciousness and so forth. Uh, and he's willing to relent on any threat of judgment. And that's the theme that we see cut, cutting across both Testaments. It's not just something that is, you know, there's a harshness in the Old Testament mm -hmm. and kindness in the New. You see kindness and severity in the Old Testament, kindness and severity in the New, but you do see a glimpse of what God's heart is, that he loves even his enemies and is willing to do whatever he can to bring them into reconciled relationship with himself. Uh, but also God will not leave the guilty unpunished either. Hmm. You know, uh, I think that a lot of people don't recognize when it comes to the Old Testament and the difference between the Old and the New is the Old Testament covers thousands of years, and the New Testament covers about 60. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more time to mess up in the Old Testament, right? <laughs> I mean, you're going to have more you're going to have more instances and opportunities for God to judge in the Old Testament yeah. than you will in the New, although Jesus does say that you're going to see the Son of Man coming with great power on the clouds, basically judging Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he really uh, he really unpacks hell much more than anything from the Old Testament. So you're getting both of those in, in both Testaments. Right. And, and there are texts, for example, as I go through Greg Boyd's book, uh, uh -huh. it's a 1,400-page or 1,400-plus page book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And I find that there's a high degree of selectivity in the verses that are cho chosen. Uh, there are some verses that are ignored. For example, in Revelation chapter 2, in red letters, Jesus is saying uh, that he is going to cast Jezebel, this false prophetess, on a bed of sickness and strike her followers dead. So that doesn't sound like this picture that Greg Boyd is portraying. Or here's another one in Jude 5. This Jude, Jesus' brother, uh, is looking at the Old Testament Christologically through a, a Jesus lens. And it, it, our best manuscripts say Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, destroyed those who did not believe. So very strong language mm -hmm. attributed to Jesus, not just maybe some something generic, um, you know. But Jesus Himself is involved in this in this severe judgment. So these are the types of things that I try to point out. That when you know that there's, I think there's some some serious distortion going on when you're saying, oh, that's just the textual God. And what I try to do in the book is show that where Greg Boyd, for example, says, oh, that's not the textual God. That's the you know, you know that's not the actual God. That's the textual God. I, I pick those very specific passages passages where, uh, where he says they're very discrepant, there's a gap between them, I show from other scriptures, both Old and New Testament, but especially the New Testament, that the 
actual God and the textual God are one and the same. They're identical. Mm. And so I, you know, and so there's just, uh, there, like I said, a number of texts that are just left out of the picture. So what I'm trying to do is show that God's wrath is actually as actually an expression of the love of God. God is not, as one theologian said, he is not wrathful in spite of being loved. He is wrathful because he is loved. That God judges when people are being dehumanized, degraded, treated, treated violently, and so forth. And if God doesn't get angry, there's something wrong mm. with that, mm. you know, that vision of that understanding of God. Mm. Uh, that is not a, a God who is good or a God who is concerned about uh, what is happening to human beings. Uh, so so anyway, those are some things that I talk about in the book. You know, it reminds me of Miroslav Volf, who famously before uh, there was war in his uh, homeland. I think he may be from Serbia or former, Croatia. Former Yugoslavia. Yeah, yeah Yugoslavia. Yeah, yeah. He, he said, I can't believe in a God that would judge people. And then after he saw all the terror that came upon his nation uh, during the Civil War, during the war, mm -hmm. he said, I can't believe in a God that wouldn't judge sin. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So he came to that realization and... Uh, and I think if we have a, a, you know, and just, I mean, I, Jesus, Jesus himself, you just think about his own anger when, when, he, you know, when he's expressing this in, in Matthew 18, 6, where it says it'd be better for someone who leads one of his disciples astray mm. to have, you know, a millstone yeah. hung around a, his neck, drowned in the depths of yeah, the sea. So right. he is using very severe language. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, the New Testament, you know, God is not about vengeance or anything like that, but rather, uh, you know, God is one who, you know, you, you know, seeks reconciliation. I'd say, yeah, God seeks reconciliation. But for those who refuse, you know, you've got the martyrs on the uh, on the earth, you know, who are in heaven, who are saying, how long, O Lord, until you destroy the, you know, until mm -hmm. you avenge our blood by those who dwell upon the earth. So you do have that kind of a call for God to promise what he said he would do to render to everyone according to what he has done. We're talking to Dr. Paul Copan. His new book is God a Vindictive Bully. We've got a lot more after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, back in two. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. You will never hear this on NPR. We are talking to Dr. Paul Copan. His new book is God of Indictive Bully, Reconciling Portrayals of God in the Old and the New Testaments. And Paul, just before the break, we were talking about kind of these two critics. One set of critics is outside the faith, atheists, and the other is inside at least they claim to be christians let's just talk for a second about the folks outside mm -hmm. when they judge the god of the bible as somehow being immoral and also they're judging that human beings are valuable and mm -hmm. therefore shouldn't be treated this way yeah. by what standard in from their worldview are they making such judgments yeah. Well, then that's the big issue. When if you're a true blue naturalist mm -hmm. who believes that nature is all the reality that there is, how do you get value from valueless processes? Mm -hmm. That fits a lot better in a in a theistic context where mm -hmm. God makes human beings in His image. There's a supremely valuable being. So, uh, so you have a, a, pro a problem of how do you even account for evil at all? How do you account for goodness at all? Uh, evil is a departure from the way things ought to be. And so, if, if nature is all the reality that there is, there is no way things ought to be. Things mm -hmm. just are what they are. Mm -hmm. So. So I think the, the people who are really, who are true, committed, consistent naturalists, uh, they, they actually can't even get their argument off the ground because they're borrowing from another worldview like theism, which takes for granted atheism. There are the kind of mainstream naturalism 
rejects any sort of notion of good and evil. So if you're gonna, you're gonna have to kind of jump ship if you're gonna be, uh, if you're trying to affirm evil, but yet, uh, you know, you know, but yet stay as an atheist. M most mainstream naturalists will reject any sort of uh, notion mm -hmm. of good and evil because it doesn't fit within their worldview. Mm -hmm. If yeah. we're just physical molecules in motion, that's all the reality that there is. But they are pointing out a problem for our worldview, if in fact this their interpretation of the text is correct. They don't have a, a standard by which they can judge anything in the Bible as being immoral, but they're going to say, well, if your God is a God of love, why does he do such things? So that's a fair question, and that's what your book addresses. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned a couple of the people who are considered inside. They're, they claim to be Christians anyway. One is Greg Boyd, mm -hmm. and another is Peter Enns. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wouldn't Peter Enns be considered more on the progressive Christianity side? And mm -hmm. is he someone who would deny the atonement? Someone who would say maybe the atonement was divine child abuse? Is, is that his position or not? Well, I, I mean, don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if uh, Peter has commented on that. Or, um, but I, I know Greg Boyd um, sees the uh, what's, what we call the Christus Victor model, that Christ came to overthrow these powers of sin and evil and so mm -hmm. forth. That he was, And that's the main... And that's the main way to understand what's going on with, uh, you know, with the death of Jesus. Uh, I, I do think that there is a, uh, a, you know, another way of looking at this, and uh, I think it's more central to what the scriptures are saying, uh, that there is a penal substitution that Christ takes the penalty that we deserve, uh, and again, in a, in a forensic or legal way. So think of a parent who is a, you know, who has a child who's you know, drives the car into a tree and, you know, or, you know, does other damage. Well, who's legally responsible to take care of the damage? Well, the parents are. The parents are not guilty, but yet they assume that responsibility mm -hmm. upon themselves. And so God, in that same way, and in fact, in fact, the triune God, it's not as though Father, Son, and Spirit are pitted, against, you, know, you know, or, you know, the Father and the Son are pitted against each other, uh, you know, and, and the world is yet the, kind of the third party, as it were. No, it is the triune God seeking to bring reconciliation to the lost world. God so loved the world, not God so hated the world. Uh, you know, Jesus uh, comes into the world as part of this triune God's plan uh, in order to bring reconciliation. So he takes that punishment upon himself, that that forensic uh, payment, uh, in, you know, in, endures that for our sakes so that we might be reconciled to God. And so uh, so I, I think, you know, in, in Jesus is voluntarily laying down his life. It's not as though this right. is somehow Jesus is this hapless victim. Mm -hmm. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up again. Mm -hmm. So so oftentimes you'll have these sorts of misrepresentations of what's going on with the penal substitution view. And I think that there are a lot of correctives that are necessary in addressing those issues. So some of the issues you address, you address in Is God a Vindictive Bully? First of all, uh, how wide is the divide between the Old and the New Testaments? And your position is... Yeah, I, I, there, there's the, what Greg Boyd, for example, tries to do is make, create a remarkable, remarkably wide gap mm -hmm. between the between say Jesus and Moses. Mm -hmm. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Greg Boyd says Jesus is repudiating the law of Moses, rejecting it, saying that it's wrong, and uh, and, and that 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 what he is proposing, what Jesus is saying, is that this is a radical difference, and what Jesus is doing is not 
you know, dismissing or repudiating the law of Moses. He is actually addressing a misrepresentation of the law of Moses. Mm. You know, like, you know, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that was supposed to be for a judicial context, People, but people were using it for, uh, you know, taking personal vengeance, mm. uh, retaliating against others. Uh, that, you know, they sought justification, you know, love your neighbor. Uh, well, by who's my neighbor? Well, the person I like or maybe an Israelite, but, you know, forget those people who are outsiders. And those Jesus Samaritans. says, love your enemies yeah. <laughs> uh, as well. Do good to those who persecute you even. So, so, so there is this picture of, you know, you know, what Greg Boyd is trying to do is create this vast gap between Jesus and Moses. And you see Paul in Romans 7 saying that the law of Moses is, is you know, it's, it's good, it's spiritual, it's holy. Uh, it, it, was, it was good for a time for Israel, part of the old covenant. And, and think of it like a booster rocket. N.T. Wright used the example of a booster rocket where the booster rocket is necessary to get the, you know, to, to get that, you know, that, that second, you know, that, for, that ultimate rocket into space. Mm. But then that booster rocket, when its job is done, it drops off. But it still has a very important mission to accomplish. So in the same way, the law is preparatory for what is to come for the people of God uh, as the church, the Jews and Gentiles alike. But there is this necessary preparation for it. Were the laws of the Old Testament perfect? No, it assumed that they... The law would you know, assume that people would sin. Jesus said God permitted certain things in the law mm -hmm. because of the hardness of human hearts. It wasn't as though it was immoral, but the, certain things were permitted because of the hardness of human hearts. And so what we see going on, and, and Greg Boyd, interestingly, uh, he's acting as though Moses is the one who has the hardened heart. Mm. But it's actually the people of mm. Israel who have the hardened hearts. And so Moses is permitting certain things because of that. So it's not Moses that's the problem. It's actually the people. And so in both in both Old and New Testaments, you see Moses is being upheld as a, a, per, a prophet who has spoken with God face to face, who knew him intimately, uh, who is faithful in all of God's household. And so there isn't this repudiation of the law of Moses by Jesus uh, in fact, the law, is, the law is affirmed, although it does give way to, uh, to a new covenant and that there is a moral carryover that takes place. So things that pertain to ancient Israel as a nation don't carry over to, to, to the church anymore because it's not a, a national entity. A couple of th key things you just said I want to amplify for our audience, Paul, because you point this out too and is God a moral monster. First is the fact that the Old Testament law from Exodus through Deuteronomy is part of the old covenant. It's obsolete. So how does that apply to us today is the question. Yeah, what I, what I try to point out, and I go into a lot more detail in this uh, Vindictive Bully mm -hmm. book, and what I try to emphasize is that uh, even various passages in the Law of Moses mm -hmm are appropriated, say, by Paul and by James. Later, yes. Yeah, so, so they are actually taking text, not just the Ten Commandments, right. but actually other themes that relate to, say, sexuality uh -huh. or, you know, James talking about your, you know, uh, paying your, your servants at the end of the day or mm -hmm. paying your laborers at the mm -hmm. end of the day, um, you know, that, that you had to do these things, that these were duties. And again, these are drawn from uh, the law of Moses. So there is a moral carryover that, uh, that is there. There's a fundamental, you know, and, and you know, I guess summarized by love, which is specific in how, you know, not stealing, not committing adultery and so forth. Uh, so you do have that moral carryover. And that's what I'm trying to emphasize. It's not as though it's, it's all, you know, you know, it's obsolete, obsolete in terms of its moral imperatives or moral demands or moral understanding, uh, but rather the covenant that is made with the Israelites is no longer binding on the people of God, which includes things like circumcision and, and, uh, and holy days and, and, and sacrifices and, and, and certain foods mm -hmm. to abstain from and so forth. Those things are, uh, are, are, 
are set aside, but they're actually fulfilled in what Jesus came to accomplish, that he, you know, all these things end up pointing to him. So, so he is the one who is the fulfillment of these things. And as we look at the New Testament, as Jesus teaching, what the apostles have to say, you know, many things are absorbed by Jesus and the apostles in their teaching as they look back on the Old Testament, the prophets and the law as well. Uh, and so that there are certain things that carry over from the, from the Old Testament to the New. Where they're repeated in the New Testament, they do, they are applicable to Christians or are binding on Christians, but where they're not, such as you mentioned, and it's ex explicitly overturned by Jesus, the mm -hmm. dietary laws, right, right. and uh, Paul yeah. with circumcision, yeah. they, that no longer applies. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people think that everything in the Bible should be somehow legislated or imposed either in the country or on even Christians in church, and that's not the case, and you point that out. Right. The second thing that I think is a big aha moment for people that you mentioned in there is that the Old Testament law was not the ideal universal law for all time in every mm -hmm. respect, mm -hmm. because you point out in Matthew 19, where Jesus says that Moses permitted uh, certain you know, yeah. laws of divorce for the hard, because of the hardness of human, you know, human hearts. Right. So, so the question is, because a lot of people look at laws in the Old Testament and say, and, and we could talk about slavery. We've talked about it on this program before. It's a different kind of slavery than what we think about here in America. But, you know, why doesn't God somewhere in the Bible completely repudiate slavery in a way that it would be crystal clear that this is wrong, and you're, you seem to be pointing out, correct me if I'm wrong here, that God sometimes works in an incremental way mm -hmm. to bring people along incrementally, mm -hmm. because if he tries to go completely, they're gonna, he's going to get complete rebellion. Is mm -hmm. that... Yeah, Fair exactly. Yeah, you know, God works with where human beings are, and uh -huh. so, you know. So He, in, in fact, I, I add a, a lot of material on the worldview differences between Israel's law and the law law collections of the surrounding nations, okay. and I and I show how the worldview differences really resonate uh, in terms of the. For example, you know how you treat foreigners who come into your land. How do you treat people who are poor? Uh, you know, in, in interest loans and so forth. How do you take care of them? You you look at you know the dignity of you know is are, are some people more to have greater dignity than others? Well, in, you know when you, when you look at the laws around the nation of Israel rather than Israel itself, you see remarkable worldview differences, hierarchies, discrepancies. You know, n people not really showing concern for the for the poor or the foreigner and so forth. But throughout the law you see repeated you know to, to look out to the marginalized mm -hmm. why because you were also because you were foreigners mm -hmm. you were strangers in mm -hmm. the land of egypt uh you were slaves in the land of egypt and so forth so he's reminding them look back to your history remember that you were you know discriminated against you were marginalized don't do that in your own land so that's something that you see that's a remarkable difference and so where god is stepping in he's saying He's elevating the world, you know, giving this elevated worldview for Israel, which is a remarkable contrast to the nations around. But still, he's meeting them part way. They still have a ways to go uh, as they move toward the new covenant. By the way, I think we see this uh, right here in America now uh, with regard to abortion. We see that uh, people have gotten used to having the so-called right to an abortion. And now they're all, almost making it seem like we can't be without this right. We're going to celebrate this right. We're going to we're going to pay for people to come to our states and have abortions. We're, we have to bring them along, it seems, incrementally. And we'll talk more about this right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, a new book from Paul Copan, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Get it. We're back in two.
Is God a vindictive bully? That's the topic of today's show. Welcome to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. My guest is the great Dr. Paul Copan, who teaches down at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He's written several seminal books on topics like this, including Is God a Moral Monster? And the brand new one, Is God a Vindictive Bully? You know, just before the break, Paul, we were talking a little bit about incrementalism. And I think that your insight on that is very helpful because so many Christians are concerned when they read the Old Testament, why doesn't God go all the way in certain areas? Why doesn't he just give us the supreme idea law in every respect? Is incrementalism something that uh, appears to be a divine tactic here to bring us along from... Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there are ways in which you do see this kind of incrementalism. Of course, we do see at the very beginning of creation that God's ideal is set forth when it comes to the fundamental equality of all people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no slavery, no sexism, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, and no no hierarchies. Uh, you also see, uh, you know, marriage in chapter two of Genesis that, you know, man, one man, one woman as one flesh for one lifetime, that this is the ideal that God sets forth. This, these, this are, these are creational ordinances, things that are to be this way, and anchored in the way God has designed things. So, so yeah, but when there are uh, deviations, when, when people like, uh, you know, in the ancient Near East fall away from those ideals, then to utterly overhaul and uh, to, to do everything in a radically new way, uh, it just would not help people. They might feel perhaps like, how could we ever move forward? We can't attain to that sort of a standard. I mean, they do know, basic, recognize basic standards. People have a conscience and so forth, and they know that they should resist doing certain things, like Amos 1 and 2 says, uh, you, know, you know, ripping open pregnant women to expand your borders or breaking treaties or, uh, you know, in engaging in treachery and so forth. Mm -hmm. Those are things that even pagan nations around Israel should have mm -hmm. known better, uh, you know, and shouldn't have done, uh, you know, and, and violated their conscience. Uh, but even, you know, I mean, in the New Testament, we see examples of the weaker and the stronger brother that there is a you know that there is a an ideal namely recognizing that Christians have liberty when it comes to in this case eating meat off that have been meat uh, had been offered to idols but are, are now on the marketplace some people had a conscience about it and so mm -hmm. Paul says don't go against your conscience but know that there's no, nothing wrong with actually doing so so it's a way of kind of educating people to you know kind of doing it in an incremental sort of way in, in an incremental sort of way where you can kind of build up to that through you know greater understanding 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 your freedom in Christ, uh, you know that you. you know, so that's just a, a small example of a kind of incrementalism, uh, and and so we all, you know, even in, in the spiritual disciplines, there's a certain incrementalism in in, in terms of improving our, you know, and, and refining our character by God's grace, and that is through, say, spiritual disciplines. It's it's a it's a way of engaging, uh, you know, our own bodies, our, our own, you know, abstaining or engaging, uh, fasting, praying, and so forth, that we engage in certain things so that that will be eventually become second nature to us. Mm -hmm. So we engage in those disciplines, uh, you know, and so it's, it, it's, you know, like learning an instrument mm -hmm. uh, or, or learning a language. It, mm -hmm. it takes time. It's kind of tough. It's, it's not always easy. It, it may even seem like drudgery at certain times, but the goal is to is, uh, develop those kind of that second sense where mm -hmm. you're, you know, you, you can speak a language with, you know, as, as you know, in a fluid way, or you can play an instrument without any, you know, in a, in a very smooth way in the same way. Uh, in the, within the Christian life, not that there aren't obstacles, but we can also train ourselves and cultivate a certain way of, uh, of, of operating, uh, you know, by the grace of God that our character continues to be transformed into the image of Christ. So, so there's a certain incrementalism even there. Mm -hmm. Now, in the, in the book, uh, is, is God a Vindictive Bully, you cover so many topics. We 
don't have time to mention them all. But one is this idea of an imprecatory psalm. There's many imprecatory psalms, several of them. I just want to read one you have here in the book. This is from chapter 17, page 122 of Is God a Vindictive Bully? This is Psalm 137. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones, your little babies, against the rock. How do we reconcile this with a loving God? Well, there are a few things to keep in mind. One, there are Five different, four different interpretations of how to understand mm-hmm. who these children are. Mm-hmm. Uh, some scholars see these children. Remember, the daughter of Babylon is not a mother. The daughter of Babylon is the nation. Okay. Uh, you know the you know the you know, the, 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 the the regal power. Mm-hmm. And so, who are the children? Well, it could be the royal line. And so, the this nation that has been oppressing, saying, you know, God, bring an end to that royal oppressive line that continues to oppress generation after generation. Or it could, it could be the, the military that engages in oppression, that these children are soldiers who are actually you know, c- carrying out the work of you know, the mother, uh, mm-hmm. Babylon, uh, and, and, and engaging in atrocities and so forth. Uh, or it could simply be hyperbolic. It could just simply be an exaggeration. Uh, or it could be saying, God, do to them what they have done to us. Basically, God's rendering to every person, every nation, according to its deeds. So if they've done that to some, Lord, may it be done to them. May they see the kind of degradation, the kind of you know, harm that they have brought mm-hmm. to others. So, so again, there could be a, you know, an array of uh, understandings of this particular text. But keep in mind, too, that there's also, you know, some people say, well, you know, should we ever use these psalms? There are some severe psalms. You know, people, uh, psalmists praying, you know, God smash the teeth of the wicked and, and, mm-hmm. and to bring them down and so forth. Well, uh, keep in mind that the psalmists are appealing to certain things like, one, the covenant that God made with Israel through Abraham, that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And if people are going to mistreat the people of God, mistreat you know the, the righteous psalmist and so forth, they're saying, Lord, do what you've promised to do. You said you would bring, you know, you would, you know, if they, people don't repent uh, and turn to you, then Lord, give to them uh, for their, you know, render to them according to their deeds, do what you have said you would do. So there's this covenant relationship. There's also this, you know, recognition that, you know, you know that the God has to do what just requires that that uh, you know he can't let justice sit idle but he is going to bring to people what they have done to others so there's that law of just you know recompense for them so and then the question you know so so there are those factors when we get to the new testament some people say well you know you got to love your enemies and so forth well Yes, we ought to love our enemies. In fact, the, the psalmist uh, in Psalm 130, in Psalm 139, he said he aligns himself with God and he says, "I hate those who hate you and those who, you know, and but yet he says, you know, hate means simply aligning yourself with one person and not another. Mm-hmm. And so the psalmist is aligning himself with God. You know, like Jacob, I mm-hmm. loved Esau, I hated. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as though it's a, you know it's an antipathy, mm-hmm. but rather God is making a covenant with Israel and so aligning himself with with them. Uh, and so it's like Jesus, in fact, used that language of love and hate. If anyone does not hate, you know, his father or mother, mm-hmm. uh, and again the parallel passage says, if if anyone d- loves his father or mother more than me, right. he cannot be my disciple. And so there's that comparative language that's being used. But the psalmist says, after he's saying these sorts of harsh things against those who oppose God and his purposes, he says, 
search me and know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me. Mm. So there's this, you know, so the psalmist basically, I think the mindset is, and we see this carry over in the New Testament, the psalmist is saying, you know, Lord, you know, work in their heart mm -hmm. or, you know, stop their heart, mm -hmm. <laughs> but examine my heart. And so there's that, you know, so it's not as though it's a kind of a, a, a retaliation. It's left in the hands of God. And the New Testament picks up on this where there are certain imprecatory psalms that are taken over in the New Testament. Again, it's diminished. So yes, they're, you know, bless and don't curse and so on. But it's not as though the language of cursing or woe is, disappears entirely from the New Testament. So when we see the, you know, the language of, of, of woe and imprecation, you know, think of, you know, Judas after he'd betrayed, uh, you know, after Jesus and hangs himself. They're looking for a replacement. And they quote to him, Peter quotes to him precatory psalms. You know, let uh, let his you know let another take his office. Let his home be made desolate. Imprecatory psalms. Um, you know, uh, Paul in fact uses an imprecatory uses imprecatory psalms in, in the book of Romans uh, about blinding their eyes and 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 breaking their backs or twisting their backs and so forth. You know, because you know, and, and again that language is being used. So when people act in ways that resist the purposes of God, then you know, then judgment is called for. That you know, mm -hmm. God stop those who are engaging in dehumanizing uh, actions. You know, bring an end to their 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 harmful activities and so forth. Uh, and and and. You know, so it, it, it's like the martyrs in the book of Revelation. They say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood mm -hmm. that has been shed by those who dwell upon the earth? So there's this call, God, do what you said you would. So it's not. So again, there's a desire for repentance, a desire for reconciliation. But when people refuse and continue to harm, then it's appropriate to pray for God to bring judgment. Uh, that's not the first impulse, not the first desire, but rather God, bring reconciliation. May they repent, uh, work in their hearts. Yeah, I think the, the consternation that people have with this is it appears that this uh, particular psalmist is praying that the babies of these people will be murdered, basically. That's probably the, the real issue here. And you're saying it could be hyperbole. It could be just an yeah. expression of emotion because yeah. yeah. my babies were killed in that way and I want to see yeah. justice done. Yeah. But and, is, is it justice then to yeah. kill their yeah. babies? Right. That's, right. that's yeah, the no, issue. And, and one, of the, one, of the, one of the things that I also point out is that there are some, uh, in a sense, cries of the heart right. that come from the psalmist where they, they, they are speaking not in their cooler moments, but mm -hmm. rather out of white hot rage. Right. And so they may be simply expressing their deep emotion after they have been brutalized and you know and so you know it's not as though they, they're necessarily holding this to be literally true like when the when you know the psalmist says you know my god my god why have you forsaken uh -huh. me it's not as though he's literally holding that to be true because later on in the psalm god is very much active and you know god is not going to abandon the one who cries out to him and so mm -hmm, forth mm -hmm. uh and also you you see that in the you know in these uh, you know in these psalms that, uh, you know, that, that God is, you know, that, you know, there are other places, you know, God, you've abandoned your covenant. You've, you know, and, and, you know, why are you doing these things? And of course, when you see it with, you know, you, know, you step back and you say, well, actually that's not the case. God hasn't abandoned his covenant and so forth. God is going to be faithful. He keeps his promise, but yet that is what the psalmist is feeling. So there are certain places where the psalmist might just speak from his heart, kind mm -hmm. of speak bluntly mm -hmm. to God, 
but it's not as though that's theologically accurate. And so we leave room for that as well. And I think this could, you know, this is, uh, you know, a passage that a lot of scholars say, this is one of those places where it's not strictly speaking, you know, it's not you know, theologically accurate or morally right. precise, but rather it's just the expression that comes from the heart of, of, of anguish. I've heard it said this way too, Paul, that most of the Bible is God talking to us. The Psalms are largely us talking to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you heard yeah. that characterization? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's of course, it's corporate sort of a thing right. too. Sometimes you have the individual uh, psalmist crying out to God, but it is meant for the the corporate worship, uh, you know, in you know in Israel, mm-hmm. and of course has been the prayer book of uh, of the church uh, over the centuries. So so you do see that sort of a kind of the this is a a norm for the church as well. That these are the sorts of things that we through the lens of Christ understand that there is you know blessing is to be preferred over cursing. But it's, again, it's not as though cursing somehow disappears. There still remains judgment and severity and woe. Uh, for those who resist the purposes of God uh, and dehumanize others. There are many other issues that the book covers. Obviously, we can't cover them all. The book is almost 300 pages. Is God a Vindictive Bully by Dr. Paul Copan. He's my guest today. We've got another segment. We may talk about violence in the Old Testament. We may talk about misogyny. We'll get to it. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two minutes. See you then. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. If you're listening to this prior to the end of the year, I want to remind you that uh, some generous donors have given us $100,000 in matching gifts. So any money that you give, any donations you make to cross-examine prior to the end of 2022 will be matched up to $100,000. So you'll double your impact. And as you know, 100% of your donations go to ministry, 0% to buildings. When we go on a college campus, we don't charge students a dime because you are the ones that are fueling our efforts. And of course, we we live stream those events, so they reach thousands of more than who are actually in the room. So thank you for your support this year. We're talking to my friend, Dr. Paul Copan, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Now, Paul, when I read a number of years ago, Is God a Moral Monster? And by the way, friends... Uh, Paul and I have done several shows on this book in the past. If you don't have our, if you don't have our app, you need to get the cross-examined app. Two words in the app store: cross-examined. You can go back years and years in the archives. Look for Dr. Paul Copan. We've talked about slavery. We've talked about genocide. We've talked about a number of questions about the Old Testament, uh, women in the Old Testament. We can't cover it all here in this broadcast, so you can go back and listen to some of those other shows. But Paul, in that book, Is God a Moral Monster, you pointed out that much of the language in the Old Testament when it came to warfare was ancient Near East hyperbole. You've expanded upon that in Is God a Vindictive Bully? What, 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 what's new about that in the new book? Yeah. Well, one of the emphases that I bring out is that that term "utterly destroy," mm-hmm. uh, which people uh, you know latch onto, doesn't always mean you know, even destruction. It could just mean, uh, you know, setting someone apart from ordinary use, like a priest or an animal, or uh, sorry, a servant or an animal, uh, or a field even, uh, you know, that these are haram, uh, or that another a parallel word is uh, that these are sanctified. Uh, so, so death isn't involved here. Or it could simply mean nothing more than exile, that mm. a people is exiled, like in the book of Deuteronomy, it uses that language of, you know, of exile to talk about you know, Israel, that you know, in what God says in, in Jeremiah 25, that he is going to, quote, utterly destroy Judah mm-hmm. and leave the cities in everlasting desolation. Actually, just mentioned, it's just uh, 70 years, so there's mm-hmm. a little bit of exaggeration there. Mm-hmm. But also, 
the people of Judah remain largely intact. Their, mm. their, 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 their infrastructure is destroyed, you know, economics, politics, uh, you know, the, the, the kingship, the, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the social structure, uh, it's been ruined but the people are still largely in place. You know, and a, a parallel that I use, taken from John and Harvey Walton, is that of, the, of Nazi Germany. The goal, fundamentally, of Israel's going into Canaan was not to destroy as many Canaanites as possible, but rather it was to destroy those objects of worship, those idols, those altars, and so forth, that you know, that, that people would gravitate to and that kept the identity of the Canaanites alive and well. And so what God was concerned about was destroying the identity of Canaanite religion and morality so that it would not be a pernicious influence on the people of Israel. So the Canaanites are not the problem, it's their practices. And, and, and John and Harvey Walton in their book uh, the, on the Israelite conquest, they talk about how in Nazi Germany, the you know you know after the allies won they destroyed all the monuments you know the flags the you know the 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 hierarchy they mm -hmm. they put to death those who are leading mm -hmm. uh, you know the nazi machinery but after it was all done you had the german people largely people in place there, yeah. the identity was removed but the people were still in place. God, what God was most concerned about was those things that would lead the Israelites astray. And so he says, for example, in Deuteronomy 7, which uses a lot of hyperbolic and intensified language from previous texts uh, in, in Exodus or, or Numbers. But it says in, in, uh, you know, in, the, in the book Deuteronomy 7, it says, you know, drive them out, destroy, or however that's to be, you know, utterly destroy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then it says, and don't intermarry with them. Uh, don't make covenants with them. Well, if you're utterly destroyed them, well, yeah. what are you doing? intermarrying with them. They couldn't. They're so, gone. Exactly. Yeah, yeah they're right. gone, aren't they? <laughs> uh, so again, you have, it's kind of like ancient Near Eastern trash talk. You know, you'd have sweeping language, man, woman, young and old, leaving no survivor. You know, it's like saying in sports language, we totally destroyed those guys. So, we so totally this annihilated is, this those is guys. This is not just, you're saying in the Old Testament, these are in other writings of from the ancient Near East? Yes, exactly. There are okay. a lot of parallels, you know, that the, the Pharaoh or, you know, the king uh, of Egypt, that he left, you know, there, there, there are no survivors. He alone was there. Uh, he turned everyone to ash, and we know from historical, uh, you know, evidence that you know this is greatly exaggerated. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about the Bible, though, is it not only mentions this language of what, how are we to translate it? Utterly destroy, remove the identity, uh, you know, to you know, or just basically win a victory. That's mm -hmm. really what it means. If you if you if you you know have a victory. You can, you, you, in a sense, you can use that language. We totally destroyed them. Mm -hmm. or, you know, so again, we can, we can talk about that. But, but is, at least in the biblical text, you see on the one hand, that language of however to translate it, utterly destroy, uh, or having a victory, and having a mention of lots of survivors. So mm -hmm. you'll see it sometimes in the same chapter, same verse even, uh, or uh, you know, a few chapters later at the end of the book. And that's why you read in Judges, for example, after Joshua, you read repeatedly, they could not drive them out, they could not drive them out, they could not drive them out. So you can have the language of man, woman, young and old without actually having any elderly people, any women, any children there. In fact, I'll, I'll give you one example of how this plays out. In, num in Deuteronomy, sorry, in Numbers 21, we have the two Amorite kings who are, who are defeated in battle when the Israelites want to pass through peacefully. And so they rise up and fight against them. But we, we read of the, the king, it says, the king, his sons, and his army fought against the Israelites, and the Israelites defeated them. Fast forward to Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Deuteronomy intensifies the language. It uses that hyperbole. It uses this rhetoric. And so it recounts that battle. But it says, man, woman, young and old, 
But they weren't at the original battle site. There weren't any women or children there. It was just the king, his sons, and the army. So, so it uses that language. Again, it's part of the rhetorical device, one of the rhetorical devices that's used. Another one that's used is you can have, like, when it comes to the Amalekites, there, you see it illustrated in 1 Samuel, where, you know, a, a common way of, of, of referring to this uh, a victory in battles, you have a localized battle in the ancient Near East. You, you fight at a certain city. And then, and then you talk about universal conquest. Then the king goes on to fight in this vast territory. Again, obviously exaggeration. We see that with, with, with Saul. He fights against the Amalekites in a citadel. And it, keep in mind, the Kenites are there. The Kenites are friendly with the Israelites. And Saul says, actually, we don't have an issue with you. Uh, you know, you go and we'll fight against the Amalekites. So they're fighting against the city, for Samuel 15, 5. And so, so obviously there aren't going to be women and children there uh, mm -hmm. who are going to be in this citadel where there's this pitched battle. But Saul wins the victory. It says, you know, Saul, quote, how do we ever translate it? Utterly destroyed them. He defeated them. And so the narrator tells us that. And then it says that Saul fought against them from, from Arabia, to Egypt, mm -hmm. a vast territory. Fast forward to the end of the book. David fights against the Amalekites in ch chapters 27 and 30. They're still there. They're still there. Yeah. Uh, 400 flee on camels. Even and, though they were utterly destroyed. Yeah, and, <laughs> okay. and you have that same device that's mm -hmm. used. He fights a pitched battle in a certain loca location, and then he fights against them from Arabia to mm -hmm. Egypt. You know, again, this vast territory. So that's another common device that is used in the ancient Near East. Again, highly exaggerated. And we see it can layer upon layer of how that exaggeration is played out in, uh, in, in the literature of Israel. So, Paul, are you saying the words in Hebrew that we translate or they translate utterly destroy... Mm -hmm those words could be translated differently? Are you saying utterly destroy is a way, a hyperbolic way of saying we, we just won the battle? Well, there are questions about it. You know, some, like I said, sometimes that language of, you know, I will utterly destroy yeah. them. You know, it could mean, it's, you know, John and Harvey Walton say it simply means, means it can mean in some context to remove the identity of right. people like the Canaanites. Oh, utterly destroyed their yeah. identity, but they're yeah. still, yeah. They're they're still, still alive. Yeah, so they're still okay. alive. So you can, you could utterly destroy someone and what the goal is, is destroy their, you know, you know their, their artifacts, their, uh -huh. you know, their, their altars and shrines, or it could simply mean, say, a def you know, like it could simply mean they had victory, right? They defeated them and... We don't know what the, you know, it's kind of murky. They, all, all we can say is that they won. Uh -huh. And not a whole lot more in terms of how many survivors there were and so forth. We're just, you know, and, and so, but we, we often do read about survivors, especially in the scriptures. They, they do mention specifically that there were plenty of survivors. In fact, Canaanites, even to the time of Solomon. So there are tons of Canaanites still around. Mm. The goal is... To remove those, you know, those artifacts. Like in, in Judges chapter two, the angel of the Lord confronts the Israelites and says, you know, not that you haven't destroyed the Canaanites, but you have not destroyed their idols, their shrines, their Asherah poles, and so forth. That's really what the problem is. That is what the snare is. And so you have to remove those identity markers, just like within Nazi Germany, remove those things mm -hmm. that that are, per, are pernicious influence that keep people, uh, you know, identifying with you know with this religion and and its practice. Paul, there's a passage, I want to say it's 1 Samuel 15, where it seems to say that uh, God is going to punish people today for sins that this group of people committed against Israel many years ago. Yeah. What, what is that passage yeah, about? Yeah, from Deuteronomy. Yeah. So there is this remember, so remember, remember yeah. you know, Amalek. Yeah. And so, so yeah, it, keep in mind that, you know, and as one Old Testament scholar, David uh, Lamb says, when you think of the Amalekites, think Nazis. Okay. <laughs> uh, in right. terms of, you know, the, the fact that they are hellbent right. on destroying 
the Israelites, removing them from the right. scene. So from the very beginning, they came over from the, in the Red Sea, Exodus 15, Exodus 17, um, and there's, they fight against the Amalekites uh, and defeat them. Uh, you know, but again, over and over again, you see the Amalekites trying to uh, to bring harm. And, and the problem is not that they you know, that they couldn't find redemption, but generation after generation after generation, they continue to bring harm to the Israelites. So yes, it was remembering what they had done. Uh, that there is, you know, you know, but but even even what's what's you know, we, King Agag in First Samuel fifteen. Uh, he is one who has been, you know, in that generation, this king has been treating others brutally. And so he's killed. And so he's going to remain. And so Samuel says, you know, your mother is going to be childless just as you have made many childless. Mm. So it's like the generational, the sin continues the generation continue. after generation. Exactly. Okay, I get it. Okay. Well, Paul, we're about out of time. I wish you knew more about this topic, but <laughs> <laughs> tell us, tell our listeners where they can learn more about you. I know you have your own website. There's a lot of articles up mm -hmm. there that people can avail themselves of. Where, where is that? Yeah, it's uh, paulcopan.com, okay. P-A-U-L-C-O-P-A-N.com. And uh, I have articles and, and so forth. You just look online too. I've got various video discussions, uh, you know, podcasts and so forth. And my books are at amazon.com. So uh, you can check them out there. Great. Get the new book, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Thank, thanks so much for being on, Paul. There's so much more in this book than we could even start to discuss. So if this is an issue for you, please get it. Also, remember, SES has a new scholarship. And if you go to ses.edu forward slash Frank, you can get half off your tuition. It's already low tuition anyway. Check it out there and we'll see you here next week. God bless.